Father, I just thank you for tonight. I thank you that we get to be here again. I thank you, um, just as Billy said, we, we praise you even in the sunshine. We, we, we haven't forgotten that you're the one that provides all of this and that, um, and that we, we, uh, we're dependent upon you all the time. I pray, God, that as we study tonight, that we will be reminded of what you are doing in us, what you have done in us, and um, give us direction, Father. Give us um, a, a, a place to step to, a, a, a place to move to as we respond to your word. Father, I pray for your, your special guidance in this and that, that through your word that you would speak tonight. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're back in John chapter 4 again tonight. We started off last week with um, the woman at the well. And um, uh, I, we will be here for a couple of more weeks. As I have studied this, it's gotten longer than what I anticipated it to be. Uh, I thought we'd get through this in about two weeks. But there's a lot here. And um, last week we went through verses one, chapter 4, verse 1 through 15. This week we'll go through verses six through, or 16 through 18. Uh, so if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles sitting around um, in the, in, well, they're not pews, in the chairs, and it's, chapter, it's page 738, I think, in those. But um, anyway, so that's where we're going to be at. Let me set the context for you so that everybody's back together on this. There's some of you that weren't here last week, and I want you all to kind of know where we've been as we've started into this. Um, we started out and we were talking about, we, we looked in the first verse of John chapter 4 and it talks about Jesus' ministry is really taking off and things are really beginning to happen for him. His ministry is growing such that it's even outgrowing John the Baptist's ministry and it really begins to make an impact and the Pharisees begin to notice and so Jesus moves on. He gets up and he leaves Jerusalem. Now, he could have easily fought, the, fought with the Pharisees, argued with them. He could have, he could have um, easily outwitted them uh, because... He was God, and uh, was a lot smarter than they were. But he knew the plan. He knew it wasn't time, so he left Jerusalem. As he left, <clears throat> the text tells us that he had to go through Samaria. And as I presented to you last week, I think that, that this implies not that he had to go because it was the shortest route between his destination, but I, I believe that the text is telling us this because he had to go there because there was a special thing that he had to do there. There was a mission to be performed there. And so as he comes into Samaria, they come to a town called Sychar. It's the location of Jacob's well. They come there. They, uh, Jesus is tired. He sits down at the well, sends the disciples on for food. And as they go on for food, a woman shortly after they leave, a woman shows up, and he begins to speak, begins to speak with her. He begins to talk to her about, uh, well, the first thing he asks her is for a drink of water. Hey, can I have a drink of water? Well, she's blown away. She's shocked by this. Who are you to even talk to me, much less want to drink out of my, my pitcher or whatever type of vessel she had to draw water from the well with. She was shocked. She was blown away. Um, but as he began to speak to her and he saw her amazement, he challenged her that if she knew who he was, she wouldn't have just given him a drink, but she would have asked for living water. And so Jesus really begins to talk to her and, and speak to her in a way that's obvious that she doesn't comprehend or that she doesn't understand. And he begins to tell her about her need for spiritual water. And so what we see happen, or what we begin to see this conversation take place, uh, is that Jesus is presenting to her her absolute need for life. He shows her that she is dry, and that she needs living water. And as we, as, as we looked at it and saw, we, we saw that Jesus demonstrated that that everything that the world had to offer, the water that she could get from that well, was going to leave her thirsting. It was temporary. The satisfaction, the fulfillment, or the, or the, the sustenance that it gave was temporary, but that he had something to offer that was eternal. And so as he began to speak about that, we begin to see that he's not speaking about just getting a drink of water. But he's speaking about eternal life. He did the exact same thing with Nicodemus. He came to Nicodemus, and he began with Nicodemus in the exact same way. And as we begin to think about what Jesus did and how he in, in, interacted with people, as we watch that and look at it, we begin to see that he's treating people in the same way. He's starting with people at the same place. Every one of us. This is the common lot of humanity. Every one of us has to, it, it, it has to begin here. 
It has to happen that, 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 that what was dead has to be made alive. And, and what he shows this woman, just as he showed Nicodemus through this, through this example, it was a different example. It fit into the context that they were in. Uh, but through this example, he begins to show her that she needs to be made alive. Well, it's obvious from verse 15 that she doesn't comprehend it. If you want to go ahead and turn to your Bibles, we'll, we'll pick up at verse 15 before we go any further. In verse 15, he begins to speak with her, and, or, or she actually begins to respond to all that he said. And she says this, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so, I, I, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It was obvious that all of Jesus, all of his... Um, illustrations and, and the way that he was presenting this was beyond her. She wasn't figuring it out. She wasn't grasping or comprehending that he was speaking about something more than just regular water. She thought that he had some water that, well, I'll never be thirsty again. And he does, but it wasn't water like you'd get out of a tap or out of a well. It was a spiritual water, a spiritual sustenance being made alive. And as she doesn't grasp that, Jesus didn't say, well, since you're not figuring this out, I'm going to quit. You're too dense to, to get it, so see you later. He continued to teach her, but he changes his method, and that's what we're going to focus on tonight, is this new, this new route that he begins to speak with her in regards to this. Verse, verse 16 is where we'll begin. We'll read through verse 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. You have had five husbands. Now, I want you to think about that in our context, in, in our culture. If you find out that somebody's had five husbands, then what's the first thought? Yeah, I don't think that's what people mainly think. But automatically, we make a judgment, don't we? don't we? I mean, automatically, there's something that clicks in our head. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what we do. Uh, actually, that's probably bad, and I'll get on to you for that in just a minute. But um, ultimately, think about this in their context. These are, these are Samaritans. Now, I gave you a little bit of their history last week. They were... They recognized the first five books of the Old Testament. They recognized the Pentateuch as Scripture. They followed and lived by the law as it was given by Moses. There was a few variations, but ultimately, they lived by the law as it was given by Moses. And so their life and their righteousness and, and their, um, their, their acceptance by people and by God, they viewed strictly by how they lived and the, in, in their performance in life. And so you can only imagine that if we, in a probably much more liberal society than theirs, wonder about a person who has five spouses, wonder what could have gone wrong, what did they do, um, if we think that, imagine what an extremely legalistic society thought and how they treated her and what, what they did to demonstrate their dis, distrust or, or dislike for her life. See, this woman was probably... More than likely, she was, she was an outcast. That's ultimately why Bible commentators believe that she was at the well by herself in the middle of the day because the, the uh, village that she lived in, the, the community, community that she was a part of, had, had cast her out and didn't accept her and didn't want anything to do with her. And here it is, is that Jesus begins to speak to her, and so she's shocked by that. She's blown away by that. And not only does he begin to speak with her, but he speaks in terms and things that she doesn't quite understand, but suddenly, he brings it right home. He brings it right down in front of her, and, and he says, well, go call your husband. Well, what did she do at first? She gives a half confession. Think about that. She, gives, she doesn't give the whole confession. She doesn't give her whole story. She doesn't say, well, you know, I'm really just living with this guy. I've been married five times, and it didn't work out, and so I'm tired of getting married, so I'm just going to live with this guy, so now we don't have to go through the divorce. If it doesn't work this time, I'll just find another place to live. See, she didn't go into all of that. She said, well, I don't have a husband. And I couldn't help but think of us. I couldn't help but think of myself. How often are we guilty of half-confessions? 
You see, this woman lived in a society that, that, that measured all of its worth and all of a person's value on their, on their performance, on their following of rules. Are we any different? Oh, we talk about grace and we talk about mercy, but are we any different? We, we, we have such a strong desire to be accepted by our peers, to, to, to be viewed as valuable by those we see as superior to us, and to be praised by those that we view as inferior to us, that we too put on an exterior shell and try and put on this show that we're something we're not. In our Christian culture today, I think this is one of the greatest flaws and one of the greatest problems that the church is facing today is that in, in this time that we live, we have created a, a, an environment that is as pharisaical as those that were living by the law in the days of Moses. How many of you feel comfortable to stand up and share with me right now the sin in your life? One hand. You see, we've created this environment that's really no different than what she lived in. We've created this environment that, that rather, than, rather than be able to, to talk about and, and share what's going on in our life and let people see what God is working in us, that we put on this veneer of self-righteousness. And we come every Sunday... We go into a Bible study. We, we hang out with our Christian friends and we turn on our Christian radio. And we act like everything's okay. We act like everything's... There's no problems. I'm not struggling in any way. See, the reality is, is just like this woman. This woman didn't want anybody to know that didn't already know what was going on in her life. That's why when Jesus said, go call your husband, she didn't say, well, I don't have a husband, I'm just living with a guy. She didn't want people to know. And the truth is, maybe not all of you, but many of us have things in our life right now that if somebody found out, we would fear rejection, condemnation, judgment, gossip. And, and, and the reality is, is that for those that didn't find out about the condemnation and the judgment firsthand, we would be judged by those that heard about the gossip. See, especially in a small group like this, if somebody found out something in this group, if somebody gossiped about it, if somebody said something about it, oh, it spread like wildfire. And, and, and so we've, we, we've got to think about how do, we, how do we come back from this? How do we deal with this? But this is the catch of it all. This is the, this is the catch of it all because ultimately we've developed this environment. We've, we've built this environment that we call church that we come into and we put on our, our Sunday best and we, we paint on our Sunday faces and, and nobody can know about any of the struggles in our life, and nobody can know what a failure I am at times, because if, I, if they find out, they'll, they'll judge me, they'll condemn me, they'll, they'll kick me out, they'll, they'll, they'll be mean to me, they'll not accept me, they'll not love me. But here's the catch. It's not until we begin to confess these things and bring them to light that we can find healing. We've bought into this lie that we can keep it a secret and that somehow, some way, we can, be, we can overcome it on our own. And that we can fix the problem and that it's not that big of a problem and as long as nobody knows about it and, and I know it's wrong and, and God, I, I'm sorry that I continue to sin in this way. I'm sorry that I continue to fail you this, in this way. But, but as long as nobody finds out about it, I'll be all right. And I'll deal with it. And I won't let it get out of control. But the reality is, is that sin, as soon as it enters into your life, leads you out of control. Sin leads you out of control. All sin leads to death, no matter how small you think it might be. It's a spiral, and it only builds. 
It only builds. It doesn't matter how good or how powerful or how strong your shoulders. It doesn't matter how, how strong you think you are. Sin leads you out of control. And it's not until we begin to confess that we can learn to deal with it, that we can even overcome it. Sure, God, is, God has placed His Holy Spirit in us. Sure, Jesus has saved us. And, 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 and the Bible tells us that for now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's absolutely true. But He's also called you to live a holy life as He is holy. And hiding it and covering it up is the only way most of us have been taught to live that. Hiding it and acting like everything is okay is the only thing most of us know. James, as he wrote to the early church, says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We have classes, and I, and I know that we, we don't have them here. I don't agree with every bit, most of the theology out of this, but there's a, there's a, uh, a Freedom in Christ class that, that uh, a lot of people, it's helped a lot of people, and, and people have found that help. But you know, it wasn't the class, and it's not the theology that helps those people. I'm convinced, because it's biblical, that it's the confession that these people make. It's the confessions and, and, letting people, and letting people know and getting the truth of their depravity out that heals them. Because that's what the Bible says. It says this in 1 John, as he wrote to the early church, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Do you understand what it means to walk in the light? See, the light brings, brings knowledge, and it, and it shows all that's hidden. And it chases away the darkness. When you're walking in the light, you may not be living that perfect life, but you're not hiding and covering up and trying to, trying to keep those pet sins and hanging on to them so that, so that, well, I really like this one. This one's mine. You see, when you're walking in the light, you're being honest about who you are. And I'm not saying that you just stand up in front of everybody, and I, I, I think that there's places for confession and there's places that aren't for confession. But how many of us, how many of us have ever truly had a relationship with somebody that we confessed to them our sin so that they could pray for us, so that we could be healed? Have you ever had a relationship like that? I see one person nodding their head, two people nodding their head. I'm ashamed to admit, I've never really had a relationship like that. And, you know, I could use the excuse, well, I've been in leadership for a long time, and I've, if, if people found out some of the sins that I've struggled with, maybe they wouldn't want me to be in leadership anymore. Because, you know, I'm supposed to be above reproach. I'm supposed to be the example. I'm supposed to be the guy that people look to. But there's no perfect person. And, you know, I don't have gross sin in my life. I don't, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like that. I can tell you about some of the gross sin that, that God has brought me out of. I can tell you about who I was apart from God. But I have pride issues. I, I struggle with... with uh, just having a conversation before church reminded again of one of my issues and, and why, why isn't this church growing faster than, I, than, than it is? Why, why aren't we reaching more people than, than what we are? What is it? What am I doing wrong? Turn very inward, very selfish, very prideful. That's some of my sin. You see, we all got it. It's the common lot of the human race. There's no one that escapes this truth. And that's why when Jesus came to people, He didn't come to people with, with uh, uh, balloons and cookies. He came to people telling them the truth. You need life. Because your sin has destroyed you. This is where it begins. And when she didn't get it, He began to speak more directly to her. He began to speak more intently to her. I think this is a key that we all need to take from this. You see, I don't think it's that we shouldn't talk about sin. 
I don't think it's that we shouldn't approach the world and talk about sin. I think we need to talk about sin. I think if we don't talk about sin, then much like we'll stagnate in the place that we're at, much like this woman couldn't grasp the truth that she needed life, the truth is, is that if we don't talk about sin and deal with sin, people won't become healed of sin. They won't find forgiveness of sin. They won't understand a need for salvation. So I think we have to talk about it. I think there's ways to do it and there's ways not to do it. My preferred method as I speak to somebody about sin is to, to make sure that I don't just point my finger at them, but I let them know where I've been and what ha- has happened in me. I don't want to just condemn and bring judgment and act as if I'm holier than thou. I don't want to stand up on a pedestal and look down at people and say, I'm better than you. You're a sinner. You see, the, the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, is that as we look to the Bible, and you look in the Bible and you find the heroes and those people that you look up to in Scripture, how many of those people lived a perfect life? Who's the heroes of the Bible? Who is your hero from the Bible? Who's your favorite character out of all the Bible? King David. What was King David's sin? Oh, man, he had a list of them, didn't he? Who else? Who's your hero? Who do you most identify with? Talk back to me. Come on. Don't be shy. Jonah. I like Jonah. What was Jonah's sin? He ran from God. Ran and he ran and he ran. You know why I like Jonah? Because I've run and I've run and I've run. That's exactly right. Who's the heroes? Come on. Moses. Did Moses always get it right? Why didn't Moses get to go in the promised land? Disobedience, anger. You remember the event? He struck that rock. He was angry. He was disobedient to God. Who else? Peter. What was Peter's sin? Peter was very prideful. Had a big mouth too, didn't he? Oh man, he thought he was so much better than he really was. I'll never deny you. Never. Yeah. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. He goes and does it. The one person, the one person that we can look to and revere in the Bible that never committed a sin, you know him, Jesus Christ. And he's come to this woman. And he's told her and he said, he said, you need life. If you knew who I was, and you would have asked me and I would have given you life. Well, I, I, I really want that water that you have to offer. I don't ever want to come back to this well. Wait a minute, you're not getting it. Go call your husband. And he begins to deal with her in a very personal and practical way. But he didn't just bring condemnation. Look exactly about how he spoke to her. Look at what he said to her. In verse 16, he says, he says this, or, or, I'm sorry, not verse 16, uh, verse 17. He says, you are right when you say you have no husband. And then at the, verse, at the end of verse 18, he says, what you have just said is quite true. You see, he's not coming and just beating her up and just slamming her to the ground. He's saying, you know what, you're an honest person. You don't have a husband, but you're not totally honest. Look at your life. And he shows her her sin in this personal and practical way. But now, why do we remember her? Why do we remember the heroes of the Bible that we look to? I would submit to you this. The reason I like Jonah so much, the reason someone likes Moses, the reason that someone likes David, the reason that someone likes uh, Peter is ultimately because as we saw their flaws, we saw God use them beyond that. You see, we're able to see in those people an authenticity, a reality of the human life. They were failures. They screwed it up. They didn't do what was right necessarily. They had to learn hard lessons. They had to be shown the right way. 
But as they let themselves go and they humbled their lives themselves before God, not trying to manipulate Him in His grace and His mercy, they just gave themselves up to Him. He worked in them in mighty and amazing ways and He changed them from the inside out. And then He used them in powerful and amazing ways to change not just their life, but the lives around them. Think about the lives of the people who were touched by God through the people who were named. Why do we remember them? Do you know what's about to happen with this woman and why we remember her? Because as she's converted, she's going to get up and go and tell her story. And the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is going to be brought to a people who are seen as outcasts, who are seen as worthless. Jesus is about to use this woman in an amazing way. And that's why I think we remember them. That's why I think we connect with them. Because in spite of this common lot of humanity, in spite of this failure, in spite of this sin, God's grace is abundant and it works in us and changes us and it makes us new. From the human perspective, I mean, I think about this. This is the thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religions in all of the world. In every other religion, you have to find your way to God. You have to find your way to utopia or, or perfection or, or acceptable, to, to some acceptable status. But in Christianity, God said, you can't, but I can for you. And he came and he made it possible. And through no work of your own, not even your response is really enough. So your response really only comes at the, at the, as a response to what he's already doing. Not even your response is, is, is enough. In spite of it all, he's come into this world and he's worked and he's continued to do what, he's, what, what only he can do. And so as Jesus comes to this woman... He illustrates, not that, not that he just likes ladies, but that he's come to all people. Think about this with me. Think about who she is. First, she's, she's a woman. And I know that, you know, in our day and age, this is kind of lost on us, but in that day, she was just because of her sex, she was secondary. She was a secondary citizen. And he had to go to her. Put it back into the context. Why was he there? Because he had to go through Samaria. So, I'm sorry, Samaria. He had to go to the Samaritans. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. Definitely not accepted by the Jews. She, in fact, as I shared with you last week, that most of the time, the, the hardcore Jews, those were, that were really legalistic and, and those uh, that, that uh, really hated the Samaritans, they would take a journey and they would, they would go way out of their way just to avoid going through the territory of Samaria. Not only was she a woman, and not only was she a Samaritan, but she was an outcast among outcasts. At the well, all by herself. Dealing with the issues of her life every day. You see, as I think about this, I can't think one of my favorite Bible, Bible uh, heroes is Gideon. Gideon was, was one of the judges, and I never learned about Gideon growing up, and so one of the first times I read through the Old Testament uh, on my own, I came across Gideon's story, and I was blown away by it. Maybe because it's another underdog story, you know, but, but Gideon was the weakest, the weakest man of the weakest family of the weakest tribe of all of Israel. And God came to him and said, you're going to be a judge, and you're going to deliver my people. And he said, what are you talking about? How can that be? That's, what, that's what's happening with this woman. She's not the right sex. She's not the right race. And she's not even, she's not even fit to, to hang out with the other ladies. And Jesus came to her and is about to use her in an amazing and powerful way. Our world is full of people like this. Our world is so full of people like this. You know, what we see happening is that we see, 
We see Jesus, first last week, we see Jesus demonstrating to her that she is dry, that she needs living water, and that he's the source. We, say that, we see that happen in the first part of this passage, in the first part of the story. But then we see Jesus begin to show to her that not only are you dry and that you need life, but your sin is what's blinding you. Your sin's what's keeping you from seeing this truth. You need to overcome this. She can't. But what's amazing is that we see Jesus approach her. And that's what we see happen in our lives and the lives of so many people. Everywhere we look. Let me, let me try and put this into context for you. Let me, let me try and help you see this because what we, what, what we look at is we look at people as we look at their, external, at their exterior and we, we judge people based on what they look like. And so for us, it might be the prostitute. It, it, it might be the drug addict, or it might be the homeless person, or it might be the, it might be the alcoholic. That, that when you look at that person, they don't measure up. And we look at those people and we make automatic judgments. Well, that's that woman. Everybody was judging and condemning her but Jesus. And as Jesus came to her, he's come to you and me. You see, because in reality, we're no better than her. We've just learned to hide it, to cover it up, to put on that veneer of self-righteousness. And just as he's come to these people that look a lot like that, He's called us to go to Him. How many of you would make your first efforts to share the gospel with people like that? How many of you realize that they're as worthy of the gospel as you and me? We don't deserve it any more than anyone else. How about for a man like that? I want you to see his story. I want you to hear what's happened in that guy's life. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to accept Christ in front of everybody right now. Then I'm going to go home and snort drugs until I don't want to do them anymore. And that was my way of thinking. So I received Christ at the church. I went home neglected my daughter and put her in front of the TV. I remember I grabbed a $100 bill. I always used a $100 bill for some reason, pride or something. I chopped up my crystal meth, got it all smooth and powdery, and I snorted a big old line. And I held the bill and I looked up and I said, Jesus, if you're real like that pastor said, then you gotta take these drugs from me. Come into my life, come into my heart. And I just got quiet. I said, search me right now. Search my heart. And I stayed silent. And I said, you know I want to quit. You know I want to be a good dad for this kid. She lost her mother to drugs. And she's going to lose me if I don't quit. Amen. There's a high when you go on stage and you see all these people like just loving your music and loving you and stuff and there's these girls and all these people going <sighs> worshiping me when you see all those people just going nuts for you it's like you know it, it puffs you up inside you're like you know I'm important that's where drugs can creep in and you know cocaine or whatever methamphetamines crept in and it all came from after drinking for me and, and my friends and uh, it seems like fun in the beginning. It's a lie because it, it, it turns around on you. It starts to wear on your personality, it starts to wear on your relationships and everything is affected by it negatively. Everything. There was a, a few times where Life seemed good. My daughter, Jenea, she came into the world and I was like, it was just such a, a euphoric feeling. I thought my life could just feel like that forever, you know? It was like a, it was spiritual, just, I didn't know what was happening. I just felt so much love just 
feel my emotions. And I thought I was going to be happy, but uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't stay sober. I didn't know how. I hit rock bottom. I had swore that I would never do methamphetamines again because I saw what it did to my child's mother. It, it just took her feelings away and made her leave her kid. I just wanted her dead. I wanted to kill her. I thought she was a scum of the earth. And, uh, you know, how could she do drugs like that and let, it, let the drugs win her like that? So I never was going to do meth again. I ended up with a everyday crippling addiction to methamphetamine and everything that I said about my ex-wife came true for me. I sunk to the lowest gutter I could ever think of. I would spend time with my kid and I'd still be on it because I needed it to function. I'd get up in the morning, have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and snort meth and then take her to school or whatever. It was just, I it was a junkie. I started losing my mind. This guy would show up at my house with like a gun and stuff. And then I ran out in Europe, had my drug dealer just crazy. send me drugs through through the mail. I'd be tweaked out in my hotel room watching this package come from the U.S. It's just nuts. My life just was like spinning out of control. And Janae had come out on, a, on one of the tours in the U.S. I just remember me. her skipping around the house She's singing one of our corn songs called Adidas. All day I dream about sex. And I'm like going, what am I doing? I'm a junkie. My daughter's singing All Day I Dream About Sex. And, uh, I'm gonna die. Father? My, uh, real estate broker, Eric, he, uh, he said, Brian, I don't mean to be weird with you. I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I, f I felt the scripture, like, jump out at me. I've never done this before, you know, so I don't really know how to do this, but I felt like this would mean something to you. It's Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I remember all tweaked out. I looked up in the dictionary, weary. I looked up burdened, and I just I pulled the scripture apart, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm weary and burdened, and I need rest for my soul, and uh, I didn't know if it was real, but you know they invited me to church a couple couple weeks later, and I had received Christ at the church. I went home, neglected my daughter, got it all smooth and powdery. Jesus, you got to take these drugs from me. Search me right now. Search my heart. Father, I felt so much fatherly love from from heaven, and it was like I don't condemn you. I love you. I love you. It was just love, love. And instantly, that love from God came into me. It was so powerful that the next day I threw away all my drugs. And uh, I quit corn. I was like, I'm quitting corn and I'm going to raise my kid. Because my kid, like I got the love from God coming to me and then it came out of me to my kid. It changed me. My heart was changed like that. And I was like, Janaea. Daddy's going to be home with you all the time. I'm quitting my career. And her face lit up, and she's like, for me? You know, she felt so special. And uh, God used her to save me, to save her life later on. My dream came true way more than I dreamt about. I, got, I made more money. I played bigger shows. I mean, houses, cars. I tried drugs, I tried sex, I tried everything to try to get pleasure out of this life. And I thought that I could fulfill my life with all this stuff by, by having my dream come true. And it came true, but it didn't fulfill it. When Christ came in, that feeling, he gives you the gift of understanding life, which is everything was created for Christ and by him and we we're created to be with him and it's the most incredible feeling because you're where you belong and contentment is given to you in life because you don't have to look anywhere else 
and you're exactly where you need to be and the question about life is answered. I'm Brian Head Welch and I'm second. I don't know a whole lot about his theology. I don't know a whole lot about him as a man other than what you've just seen on that video. But what I know is that Jesus Christ came into his life and radically changed him. Where did it start? Well, see, it started really before he came to the point that that real estate agent had the nerve to share a Bible verse. But it became real at the point that that real estate agent shared that Bible verse. You see, at that moment, Jesus came to him. And how many of us would look at a guy like that, and how many of us would just discount that he had any desire to hear this truth? You know, and I've, I've picked people that are on the outskirts. I've picked people that... that automatically don't measure up in our sight, but there's people around you every day that look normal and that, that, that they don't seem to have anything wrong with them that want to hear the gospel, that need to hear the gospel, but they'll never come to you and say, please tell me and share me with me the gospel because they don't know they need to hear it. They don't know they want to hear it. I want you to think about your children and, 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 and anybody that's been around kids. How many of them ask to be disciplined? How many of them want to get spanked because they did something wrong? How many of them want to be grounded? None. It doesn't happen. Please discipline me. No. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. And these people are lost in their sin and they don't know any different. And all they're waiting is for somebody who knows the truth to come and share it with them. What he realized, what this woman realized, and what other people in the Bible realized, and maybe what you've realized as well, is that this world has nothing of worth to offer. It all leaves us wanting. I can remember wanting a truck, a specific truck. Well, in fact, I drive it today. And it was great for a few months. That's just a truck. It breaks down. Got a dent in it. I got shot by somebody. And now I had rust, and I had to paint where it was rusting. It's a truck. It left me wanting. I wanted a good job. I wanted to make decent money. I got it. Make decent money. I'm not rich by any, by, by any means. But as I worked it, I found myself empty. And I knew that there was more to life. And I knew that God was calling me to something deeper. So here I am, still working a full-time job. Sacrificing a lot of family time, a lot of personal time, personal ambitions. There's all kinds of other things I'd love to be doing. I'd love to fly. I'd, I'd love to own an ultralight so that I could go out and fly anytime I wanted to and be stupid and dangerous with it. And, and it would be so cool and so fun. But I've learned a lesson. It all leaves you wanting. See, there's only one place that you find satisfaction. <clears throat> As we form this church, let me just close with, with a few points of application. As we form this church, we must strive to to foster an environment not like any other place you've ever been. A place of love and acceptance of grace and mercy. Not to ignore sin, not to forget about sin, but so that sin can come to light and people can deal with it and be healed of it. See, one of the things that, one of the, one of the reasons that I feel strongly about community groups is because we can't build a family in one hour a week. It's not going to happen. But over the last, uh, it's been about 12 weeks now, 13 weeks, we've been meeting at Aaron and Kathy's house. And in the group that's been meeting, it's a small group. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we're a small group as a whole, but even in this group, it's a small group. There's only about six or seven people that regularly show up. But something happened last week. I didn't get to be there. I got to work late. But... Uh, 
something happened last week that my, my, how do I say this? It's almost as if it's beginning to gel. And the intent of these groups is beginning to happen in this one. We've always had some good conversation. We've always been able to talk. But from what was shared with me is that there was some real sharing, some real needs being shared, and, some, and, and something beyond the surface was beginning to be opened up. You see, it takes time. It's not going to happen in one hour a week. And, and, and the hope and my, and my dream for this group is, is that it doesn't just stop in meeting this one hour a week, but pretty soon that they're so entrenched in one another's lives that, that not only are they meeting this one hour a week, but they're sharing with one another on email, that they're talking to one another through the week, that they're getting together for lunch, or, 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 or that they're, they're, they're um, oh, wait a second. When a need comes to light, that they're the first to know. But it only, it's going to take time. And it's got to start somewhere. And, and that's not the only group will start like that. The in, intent is to, to build other groups like this so that we can build a family. So that in this place, in, in, in that small group setting, that you find a place that you can be loved and accepted and not condemned and rejected just because you've got a failure or a flaw. We can't let one another continue in our failures and flaws. You see, when Jesus, it's just, like, it's just like this guy, Brian Head Welch, when Jesus came in, he changed him. He didn't leave him a druggie. He didn't leave him strung out on meth. He took it from him. But there's so many things in our lives that we need help in, that we need accountability in, and that's only going to happen in these groups. You see, we're so quick to point out other people's problems, but so reticent to share our own. You and I have got to let one another share. You and I have to give a place where people can confess that they can be prayed for and they can be healed. We must no longer determine a person's worth based on what they look like or what they have to offer us. None of us deserve grace. That's what makes it grace. Something you can't earn or deserve or, or manipulate out of someone else in any way. It is a gift freely given. You know, everyone in the world has experienced God's common grace. You think this place is bad now? Imagine what it would be like if God wasn't sovereign. If God took his hand off of it as it is. The evil of humanity would run rampant. For those of us that believe, we've experienced His saving grace. And you know a truth that, that many people in the world don't know, and you've been transformed by a truth that, by, that many people have never experienced. You don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you anyway. You, you can't do this on your own, but I can do it for you. You can't earn this. You can't work for it. You can't make yourself worthy of it. But I love you enough that I'm coming into this world, that I'm doing this work for you. None of us deserve that. And, and, and like I said, I, I, chose, I chose people that automatically our minds would make a judgment on. Because I wanted you to see what it was like for Jesus when he came into this world. Because while we can talk about a Samaritan woman who didn't deserve it, and we can talk about drug addicts, and we can talk about uh, alcoholics and homeless people, and, and, and look at people for what they have to offer or what value we see them in, you see, that's us before a holy and righteous and perfect and pure God. doesn't matter how much money you make or how big a house you live in or how, how fancy a car you drive or how important you feel in your own skin, or, or how, how special you think you are, the reality is you're no different than them before a holy and pure and righteous God. And every one of us go into a world surrounded by people who may look very normal, but who are very lost. And they need to hear this truth. They need to hear about this grace. They need to hear about this grace in spite of their sin. 
And we must no longer look and stand on a pedestal looking down at a hopeless world. It's not just a church's responsibility. It's not just us as a group. It's not just our responsibility. It's your and my responsibility to go out into the world that we live in, to, to, to be used by God in that world that only we go into. Let me ask you a question. What if no one had told you about Jesus? Everyone sitting in this room, I know you, and I know that you have heard about Jesus from someone. What if no one had told you? Let me ask you a question. Another one. What if you don't tell the person that lives next door to you? Or that sits next to you at work? Or that you correspond with via email all the time. If you and I aren't willing to share this truth and this grace, we are making a decision for them. If Christians won't stand up and share the truth, then we are deciding that they don't want to hear it, that they don't need to hear it. And we are making a decision for their eternity for them. Oh, God could come down and he could, he could speak it out loud and He could make it known. But who did He send? He sent you and me. He sent us to Samaritans. He sent us to outcasts. He sent us to normal folk. He's put us in the place that we live. He's worked this, this vision in, in me and in you for this church for a reason. Every one of us have a world to impact. And every one of us are responsible to share with that world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I first thank you that